Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I am not a bad guy. I just have a bad personality. It's not my fault. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we're a Jungian podcast now. When are you finally going to confront your shadow and start to individuate? You know, during the one hour in which you were trying to troubleshoot your computer, I was totally <laughs> doing shadow work. <laughs> it was mostly it was mostly doing shadow work. Uh, like I can imagine, yeah. I was staring into the face of evil itself. <laughs> I don't know what the deal was with that. All of a sudden, my no headphone recognition. Yeah. Maybe it's just been so long since we recorded it. Just forgot. (laughs) It's just forgotten. It it has been. For us, it's been forever. We're not like these, like, podcasts that takes breaks between seasons. No. And we certainly aren't the kind of podcast that can, like, record three in a row and, like... (laughs) (laughs) Case in point, but we're always scrambling to the last minute. Right. (laughs) this could be a good episode plus we're both on edge Dave is shimmering with resentment and I'm just (laughs) agitated and frustrated from the troubleshooting I had to do it's like you're you're gonna treat me like you did Christina after the catonic mother (laughs) (laughs) based catonic (laughs) stepmom that's an archetype the catonic stepmom where did Jung place that (laughs) Uh, I got to remember next Thanksgiving to introduce her as that. (laughs) 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 Anyway, before we, so we're going to talk about Jung in the main segment, but before we do, um, we're going to try to talk about disparaging humor. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you put this in our Slack. Where did, was this like a a neuroskeptic? Or Reddit. Reddit's been a kind of goldmine for us for, um, like, our Reddit for opening segment ideas. Yeah. Um, So I, but I don't remember. So there's, there's an article that was published in November called Uncover the Offensive Side of Disparagement Humor, an fMRI study. And, okay, look, it's an fMRI study. (laughs) Everything we've ever said about an fMRI study uh, (laughs) applies uh, applies here. (laughs) I don't think that there's anything new that we're going to say about the value of imaging while giving people stimuli, psychological stimuli. But there are some aspects of this that, that I think are worth talking about. Maybe 
What do you think? <laughs> yeah, well, just to sum up just very briefly what you said, because it's true, we're not going to rehash our criticisms, but they do like a behavioral study, like a lot of these fMRI studies. They do a behavioral aspect of it and then the fMRI aspect of it. Like there's nothing that you learn in addition from the fMRI part that you wouldn't know from the behavioral stuff, except maybe like, oh, well, this is, I mean, presumably, I'm sure this is all, you know, problematic too, but this part of the brain activates when this stimuli is applied. Right. Certainly, like you might, if, if there's anything to be learned, it would be whatever parts of the brain are being activated. So, so I suppose that if you're a neuroscientist, there might be something interesting in these findings. But even then, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think right. they would be because I just don't think that the study is designed such that you can say much about about right. anything right like no matter <laughs> what your dependent variable is um, so, yeah. so the basic design of the study was they wanted to investigate the differences between disparaging humor that is like insult humor i guess so jokes jokes where someone is the butt mm. of the joke yeah just, um, just belittling uh, right belittling others. versus just offensive statements that aren't funny Mm-hmm. like what they call socially inappropriate statements right. versus neutral statements that are neither offensive nor funny. And so they construct, uh, like in order to try to control for as much as they can, they use the same setup line for all three categories of things. So either either disparaging humor, socially inappropriate, or neutral. And so I'm going to say the Santa Claus one because yeah. they, they use it as an example. <laughs> so bizarre. A prostitute to another one. <laughs> what did you ask Santa Claus? And so the funny response, 50 pounds or 50 euros, like everyone else. That's the joke. Yeah. It's like the real joke. <laughs> That's the funny one, right? Because yeah, everything is funny or socially inappropriate or neutral. Right. Uh, yeah. The socially inappropriate response, Santa Claus is a lousy old man. And the neutral response, a better life. Why is that socially inappropriate? I don't understand that. You can't, you can't, you can't just defame Santa Claus, you know? Can you not? This, I, is, this, is a, this plagues the entire study. <laughs> just like what they consider funny or socially inappropriate is pretty arbitrary and often like bizarre, just weird. Yeah, and so... Like the authors are Italian, Italian and French. <laughs> I looked at um, this too. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know where the the data was collected. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, and I, and I don't think they say what language. Whether there was a different language. So those three were presented. I, like they got pre, they got a separate group of fifteen people to rate all of these, um, but they also had people while they were in an MRI. They were given sets of these jokes that were either funny, socially inappropriate, or neutral. Um, and they were asked to rate how funny they were. And then later on, outside of the scanner, they were asked to rate how offensive they were. And I don't know. I guess the, the finding is that, that disparaging humor was not offensive, but it was funny. It's funnier than the neutral ones. No, no, no. I thought it was, if you labeled an offensive thing... F- funny you saw it as less offensive right if you look at the the plot of like the punchlines with the the disparaging humor those were seen as more funny and less offensive 
But the but but yeah, but the socially inappropriate version of that was considered to be more offensive. So, offensive and not it, funny, right? Well, right. If the point is like, depending how funny you saw it was related to how offensive you thought the, and so their idea is that it generates this conflict in your in your brain. Right. Um, whereas you want to laugh at it, but you also think it's offensive. And so the way you resolve that in part is by just making it less offensive or right. judging it to be less offensive. Right. So you're, you're somehow like the funniness defeats the offensiveness of it. It's like I saw it as trying to resolve a kind of cognitive dissonance where you just, even though in another, in a non-funny context, you would rate it as offensive and this you know, like on an offensive scale, say an eight, if it's funny, you rate it at the same kind of socially inappropriate offensive remark you would rate as like a five, just to resolve the fact that you also want to laugh at it. Right, right. Which would work if they were this actually the same, like if you could actually control for that carefully. Like right. it's just very, it's just the most, the easiest explanation is that the disparagement jokes were jokes. Right. So like they 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 had a shot at being funny. Right. It's like but also like I yeah, I mean this is something I've always thought about for humor is that it is legitimately less offensive. Right. Like this is only a surprising result if you think they're actually the same level of offensiveness but yet we judge it to be less offensive in the case of funny ones. But no, like the fact that something is funny makes it less offensive, I think. Like I think so too. Right. And, it, and, and that may not be the case. I don't know that this can't say, I, tr I tried my best to read the brain analyses to see if they were saying anything, but it, it just relies sort of on this inference about what these regions in the brain are doing. And I'm just not sure that it's interpretable like this, but that's the part that is, that has the grain of interest. Like, is it the case that we, is there like a, a stage like process where you judge something to be offensive, but because you interpreted it as funny, you then don't think it's offensive or does it bypass the offensiveness altogether? That's what's not clear. Like, yeah. And it's also a conceptual point where, it, so there's, yeah, the, the cognitive mechanisms that are going on, assuming right. like this, that's the right way to think about this. But I also think like, I mean, I remember you were talking about the Chappelle special, the most recent one. And yeah. one of the things that you found distasteful about some of the trans jokes were that was that they weren't funny. <laughs> yeah. Like if they're funny, you get it. But if right. they're not funny and still like socially inappropriate, then that becomes more offensive just in virtue of, well, if it's not funny, then what's then what are we doing here? You right. know, like if it's a comedian making offensive Joe, this is why like funny comedians can get away with most things and not funny comedians. But I think that's just because when it's funny, it's just less offensive. And I think so. Here's my psychological theory of it. Like, I think that the appraisal of humor is an unconscious quick one. Like we're not doing much work right. to try to figure out whether something is funny. But the moral appraisal about whether a statement is offensive requires some degree of conscious judgment. Right. So if a joke is gross, I could have that gross feeling immediately. And whether right. or not it was funny would be independent of that. I could have both of them. I think the funny part comes in so quickly that you then sort of have to like, after the fact, make the judgment as to whether you should be offended by that. Right. Like yeah. that immediate reaction is, I think it's just too, it's too primal or quick or unconscious, like whether or not something's funny.
Right, right. Mm. It's definitely not something you think. I mean, sometimes you have to think about it in order to get it. To get it, right. But once you get it, it's just like, is it funny or not? Like, you just can tell. I think that's right. The most interesting thing in this article is that I learned of a a new term that I didn't know about called gelatophobia. (coughs) Did you catch this at all? No. It's a fear of being laughed at. It's like an... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Apparently it's an actual phobia that has been that has been measured that some people are just like really deeply afraid of being laughed at by other people. So when they hear laughter, they get paranoid and think that it's directed at them. I feel like I have that. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're laughing at me. You're fucking laughing at me. It's it's the Pesci. It's like the, the Joe <laughs> Pesci problem. <Exactly. laughs> I, but I also think like you could make just an argument. So I get what you're saying at, at the psychological level. But if a j- socially inappropriate joke is funny, y- you feel like the intentions of the comedian, it justifies saying it, the social inappropriateness, because of it's for the service of something that is funny. And that's and you feel like that's the goal of it is to be that's the goal is to be funny. But if something is not funny, and socially inappropriate. It's like, oh, well, then the goal is just to be offensive. Right. It's, it's really interesting because whether or not you are interpreting the goals to be funny is so context dependent. So you can engage in like, you know, snapping like battles of wit where you just insult each other's mother. Yeah. And and you can say something super funny about how, you, you know, your mom is so fat or whatever. But out of that context, even an attempt to be funny out of that context might be met with some sort of like, wait, are you just being mean? Like, are you actually saying something about my mom? Um, Like, it's a pretty complex calculation that we're making when we're hearing these jokes. And that's why I think very funny jokes, if you go into that, to the setting of like, say, a stand-up comedian who's like, you know, edgy in that way, if you go in prepared to be offended, you're not going to find things funny. And you're going to find them offensive, but they might be able to win you over if they engage that laugh, like that primitive laughing part of you. If they engage that, then, then they're good. But the, the, the sort of the other, the kind of unfair part of it though, is I think just in my folk way of understanding it, it's like, well, if, if it's not funny, then you must have some agenda or something like that. And that doesn't involve humor. But the fact is, some people just aren't as funny as other people. And so they have the same intention to be funny when they make their, like, racist or anti-Semitic or sexist joke. It's just that they're not funny. And so they can't make, (laughs) right? And so, and now those people are considered offensive, whereas the person who can do that with the same intention uh, but be funny is like, oh, that's just, you know, that's just Pizarro. Right, exactly. Have you seen... um that Phoebe Waller Bridge uh, series that she did before Fleabag. Fleabag. Oh, before the, the Fleabag. She did, no. Yeah, she did one called Crashing, and I, I I was just been watching it, so that's why it's top of mind because I watched Fleabag with my daughter and Nikki, yeah. and uh, we were watching that's Crashing. So good. And there's a great, ex- there's just this great instance of like there's a real anal woman who never lets loose, and she's trying to engage in all of the dirty humor that's going on, and she says something. And everyone just stops and like looks at her. <laughs> yeah, the, I guess you just have to stay away from it, you know. 
Uh, you just, you just yeah. not, like, it's just off limits for you. <laughs> yeah, you and it's not know. because, like, you're a bad person. It's just because you're not funny. Yeah, and you, you, ha- you just have to know that. It's like it's like a know thyself sort of way. Here's a yeah. question, though. Like, if if I'm right about the, the funniness uh, being sort of automatic and then the, yeah. the offense requiring judgment, it should be the case, and I think this matches, at least with my experience, that I can uh, have sort of a second-order offense reaction that i can make even after i laugh at a joke i can say no actually that was really fucked up yeah but you can't really have a second order like okay that was funny and now i'm gonna laugh no right right like you've convinced me we talked a little bit about this in the context of something else but we you and i were talking about how uh how you can't really convince somebody that something is funny no like if they don't get what the joke is you know, if they don't get the double entendre or something, you can explain it. But you can't, you can't say no. <laughs> like, no, this is why this joke is funny, and then right. have them spontaneously laugh. And even the former is a stretch sometimes. Right. Like, and even if it's their fault for not getting it, like once you are in the business of explaining it, explaining it, it's going to be less funny. But you certainly can't if they got the whole thing. And and I know that feeling where somebody will tell me a joke that I just don't find funny, and then they'll start explaining. I'll be like, No, no, no I get it. <laughs> You know, like I know that's not the issue. It's a funny, a funny response is that I get it, but it's not funny. Okay, so let's not pretend, Tamler, that there hasn't been approximately 12 hours since or 16 hours since we last recorded uh, we had a bit of a uh, weather situation in houston this has really been i think you texted me that like the universe doesn't want us to record this episode but like the dark forces the demons are lining up to try to prevent us from doing this but they it really felt like us. that it really felt like that like a tornado knocking on your door we in the middle of talking about people not getting jokes and uh, or getting them but not finding them funny and all of a sudden my power goes out for like, <laughs> like two hours yes yeah and we had tornado <laughs> warnings last night my dog is terrified and uh, our bed is essentially just like a, a, a drool pond right now <laughs> <laughs> and you're on very little sleep, so who knows what this will mean? Maybe this will be a, a looser segment than it would have been last night. Maybe this is good for accessing my unconscious. That's illness. right. That's right. Um, if only you had dreamed. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah, you were saying you were saying something about people explaining jokes to you, and you saying, "Yeah, I get it. It's yeah. just not funny." Yeah. And that is one of the most frustrating things when you really do genuinely find something funny it's hard to get into the mindset of someone who doesn't find that thing funny so you it feels like a natural thing to do is to try to explain it and then to be met with the no i get it it's like one of the worst feelings in the world i don't do that i don't try to explain a joke to somebody if if they either get it and they don't find it funny or don't get it like there's really nothing you can do at that point there really isn't it's a futile it's like a, a bad instinct but I feel like people do it to me. 
Like people <laughs> will explain their jokes. And that's why I'm more often in the position of being like, no, no, no. Because often like, it, like you'd have to be stupid not to get it. Like, yeah. so them explaining it to you is sort of a veiled insult to their intelligence. <laughs> so you have to just explain to them, no, 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 that's not the issue. The issue is that it's just not funny. Right. It's like someone explaining to me, like, no, no, see, Lin-Manuel Miranda is, like, a, he writes raps, and, like, they're, they're really good. <laughs> he's, like, no, hard, no, I know, I know hardcore hip-hop. <laughs> Boy, the world has come around to you, your opinion of Lin-Manuel Miranda. Well, it feels, I'm not going to lie, it feels nice. <laughs> you were one of the, like, early haters back when <laughs> there weren't that many. It was pretty much you and uh, Michael Rappaport. You're <laughs> That's right. it. <laughs> It's a uh, it's it's early corny detection. It's, I'm going to write a paper on it. It's uh... mm-hmm. <laughs> Cordar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Anyway, what did we have left to say about this? Um, about I think we paper. what we wanted to do was there was a great example of how explaining a joke uh, makes it <laughs> brings it brings well, it down. Except that I think, like, there's no real hope for this joke, whether you explain it or not. No, it brings a otherwise, like, not funny joke to the depths of hell of, like, a... (laughs) Right. So here's the the line. And this is is a problem that runs through the paper. There's, like, another couple examples I could give. We gave one already, but... In disparagement humor, an individual or a category of people is typically portrayed in a ridiculous manner. Consider this joke, so this is their example, deriding the category of engineers, the protected, marginalized category of (laughs) of engineers. An engineer is on his first day of work. When he arrives, his boss gives him a broom and asks him to clean the floor. The guy protests, but I am an engineer. Ah, you're right, the boss replied. I'll show you how it works. <laughs> so, okay, it continues. This is it's terrible. It continues. In this joke, the category of engineers is targeted and the perceiver must cope with two different and contrasting processes. The feeling of mirth, uh, I'm sorry. The feeling of mirth derived from the comprehension of humor and the perception of offense. <laughs> Just like I don't find, feel like either of those things is remotely present in, in that joke. Either the perception of offense or certainly not the feeling of mirth. So, certainly not the feeling of mirth. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, we're going to give them a, a, a bit of a pass for what appear to be clearly non-native English speakers. But I can't imagine that in any language this is... Yeah, this I, is this is the perils of, of the deep fear. This is what you fail to admit, Tamler, over and yeah. over again, is the chilling effect that would make somebody use, as an example of an offensive joke, such <laughs> an innocuous, non-offensive. And actually one that I wasn't sure I got, but I got two paragraphs explaining it to me. That's right, um, yeah and the incongruity resolution model. The inco- there is incongruity here, but the incongruity is how did the authors think that that was a funny joke? <laughs> like, right. clearly smart people, right? Because, I mean, you know, the fact that they're using it as an example makes me think they used it in the study. They don't have an appendix of all the jokes, which I'd no, love they to don't. see. I, I, I really wanted yeah. to see uh, it. But given that both all, all the neuroscience... <laughs> 
and the behavioral results depend on these things yes. actually being a f- like disparaging, socially inappropriate, and funny. And it just doesn't seem like they like in any of these. That- <laughs> we get one. We get one more. We get one more so, example of a joke in one of the graphs. Yes, where, I was going to say this too because <laughs> I, I want to know where you think they put this. I I was curious too. Okay, so this is in the graph uh, demonstrating the timeline, which is often you know for fMRI studies they they usually show you what happened at, at like the first second second second. So the setup line: a drunk guy meets a nun and beats her up. Then he says, and then it shows that there's like a half a second, and then the punchline is delivered. Then he says. I thought you were stronger, Batman. <laughs> That's the closest <laughs> one to a fun, funny joke. Yeah. It's not no. that funny. It's like, not, it's just not, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> it's super, it's, it's almost postmodern. Yeah. Um, which is what made me think that maybe, maybe that wasn't the true punchline. Maybe that was. Uh, just the socially inappropriate one. Yeah. But, but it can't be right. Cause I thought you were stronger. Batman isn't the, yeah. the punchline. Isn't what's socially inappropriate. This is the thing. The socially inappropriate part of this one, if they used it, is the setup. So if they're looking for the part of the brain that lights up for social inappropriateness in the punchline right. segments, then they've already kind of ruined it. Right. It's not like you perceive the offense afterwards when you realize he thought he was Batman. <laughs> right. Well, beating up a nun is fine, but Batman? But, what? But, you, but no, there's a lot of issues with this. I, I There are very few studies that I've seen, and I I went through a period of looking at research, both in philosophy and psychology on humor, and especially like offensive humor. I even wrote a little paper, I never tried to publish it, but um, on like why some people can get away with offensive humor and some people can't. I think we talked about it at some point, but they're just not good. And this is part of the problem is if you are an academic researcher writing on humor, you know, or trying to create studies on humor, chances are you're, you know, you're not going to be funny enough to actually come up with things that you will correctly identify as funny. And And certainly not, it's, it would be way too difficult to both come up with a good stimuli also in a way that is tightly controlled in the way that most of these experiments Mm -hmm. want to be. Right, because so much about also humor is delivery. Yeah. Somebody in an fMRI machine getting a joke, is that the same? Does that generalize to, you know, how most people react to humor if they're not (laughs) in an fMRI machine? So there's all sorts of problems. This also reminds me, there's this episode of Star Trek where Data, the robot who is trying really hard to grasp human emotion, there's an episode where he's trying hard to grasp humor. And so as part of his studies, he he goes into the holodeck, right, where there's full-blown simulations of a uh, comedy club. And what's hilarious is that the stand-up comic is Joe Piscopo, and he delivers a bunch of jokes that are just really, really not funny. So, so you're, it's exact same feeling that I got here. Like this is what you're using to learn about humor and humanity. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> so well, I apologize to all the engineers listening to this who got offended without laughing. Uh, yeah, no, um, it, we we feel really bad, and you know maybe that's the next thing. Uh, that's the, those are the next people. Who's going to drive the trains if engineers are offended? Yeah, who's going to like make the metaverse? <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, we'll be right back to dive into our collective unconscious. 
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash VBW. Life is full of stressors. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have. Your life is probably stressful. And with Omicron taking over and the new year coming, everything can feel overwhelming. And maybe you're not feeling down and out or lost or totally depressed, but if your anxiety is higher than normal or in your temper shorter, or if you're starting to feel strain in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload. So unload the stress, confront the sources, as Carl Jung might say, and get it out. Talk to somebody who's completely unbiased about your life. It's always nice to have somebody listen to you who isn't going to judge you or take sides on anything. They can give you a fresh perspective on the difficulties you're facing. When there are things you feel like you can't tell anyone, but you just need to talk about it, well, that's what therapy can be. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So try BetterHelp and see if it's for you. BetterHelp is a longtime sponsor of Very Bad Wizards, and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month by going to betterhelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks, as always, to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the podcast where we like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners and all of our supporters for everything, their interaction, their contacting us, their interacting with each other, their general moral support of this podcast. We really, really appreciate it. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by emailing us at verybadwizards at gmail.com or you can tweet to us at verybadwizards, at Tamler and at Pease. Um, you can join in the discussions of our lively Reddit community, uh, who, whom we've been poaching ideas from for segments now, uh, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. You can also follow our Instagram account, um, which yeah. is refreshed with each, with each new episode. Definitely, because um, we're very close to like 4,000 followers. That's incredible. Like I've been on Instagram for years and nobody follows me. Uh, I thought we follow you very yes, bad with it. That's that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I also barely post. Rate us on Apple on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. Give us a review or at least a star rating. Hopefully, we think that helps other people find the podcast. And you can listen and subscribe to us on Spotify. Um, 
But just in general, thank you for all of the interaction. Yeah, and I actually, even though Dave sounds like he's in a hostage video saying that stuff, like <laughs> I, I actually really believe all those things. And I was blinking in Morse code. <laughs> this is bullshit. This is bullshit. <laughs> Five, uh, yeah, five-star reviews. We've been getting uh, a lot of good ones lately, and I do think that's helped. Uh, if you'd like to support us in more tan, even more tangible ways, you can go to our support page on our website. You can um, give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal, or you can become uh, one of our Patreon patrons. And um, we really appreciate um, the people who support us there and we try to give a little back um, and we in the form of bonus content so you get ad-free episodes at any level of support you get bonus episodes at two dollars per episode or more you get um, at five dollars per episode at that tier you get a bunch of stuff you get to vote on on the next very bad wizards patron selected podcast topic <coughs> and and just to ta- decide what we what we'll talk about, and those have been some of our best episodes. I think you yeah. get our brothers Karamazov series directly to your podcast feed, and you get Dave's video lecture series, and I just put up something too—a little lecture on Plato, a not as well produced um, lecture on Plato. I looked at it; it was fine produced. <clears throat> it looks good, and uh, people really liked it. So I hope you keep doing it. I mean, I, you know, like I, I could post a couple others too. I didn't do that many of the human situation, the great books, lectures online. But yeah, if I find another one that would be good. Oh, and then at $10 and up per month, you get a monthly... Uh, per episode. Per episode, sorry. You get a monthly Ask Us Anything video that we will put out. And the last one we put out, we liked so much that uh, after a few weeks, we made it available to all the bonus segment people because it was just there were a bunch of great questions we talked for like an hour and a half and had a i thought it was a good conversation that's my memory and people seem to like it so uh, yeah and we might consider doing doing that again because i understand ten dollars per episode is a lot but but those people do get to ask the questions but but it seems nice to have other people here yeah and see and they get to they only get to see the video but uh yeah but we release the audio for everybody, maybe for everybody a little later, like a couple weeks yeah. later. Uh, if it's good. If it's not good, then <laughs> we, we won't. <laughs> and we, need, we do good. need a couple more questions for this month. So Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then you can buy swag. You can buy mugs, T-shirts, sweatshirts, uh, a lot of cool stuff. We got to come up with a new design soon. I think it's time. Yeah. Maybe. It might be time. So thank you so much to everybody for everything that you do. Um, we're so grateful for that. And now let's turn to Carl Jung. All right. So Carl Jung, Dave, I have no idea what your exposure to him is, whether you teach him in your intro classes or at any level, what you think of him at all. This was pretty much, I just knew little fragments of basic ideas about archetypes or, or, you know, I knew that he had this idea of the collective unconscious. I didn't know really what that meant in any detailed way. What about you? You know, I studied some Jung in undergrad as part of my uh, major in psychology. I happen to have a professor who is super into like depth psychology. Um, uh, so that's where I learned a lot about Freud and some about Jung. What's depth psychology? Depth psychology is 
a term that collectively would refer to um, the theories of Freud, Jung, and other kinds of psychoanalytic theories that believe that the the you know the font of human mental life is really deep in un, in the unconscious way. Mm-hmm. So, so depth psychology. I guess referring to like let's plunge the depths of your psyche in order to have insight much which something like say kind of behavioral therapy is not because that's very much about just what are you currently thinking like what's right. in your conscious mind and what or, habits uh, are you developing right exactly like yeah. who cares why you yeah. are a phobic of of dogs let's just work on you know like your appraisals in the moment when you see a dog or whatever yeah um so so you know I've I've I felt I've always felt like I know enough to talk about about Jung in in the sense that I like I knew the basics of of his theories, but as I think maybe you realize, I think you could read Jung for the rest of your life and not quite understand everything that's going on <laughs> yeah. with him. So there's a lot of I think the basic stuff that that is accessible and then there is like his view of the mind the rest of his works are like plunging the depths of somebody's very very idiosyncratic thoughts on culture and and the mind and and i think here it might help to contrast jung with freud i don't think we'll talk too much about their history but of course jung and freud had had this friendship jung being the the younger um he viewed freud as a father figure um but the differences and part of the reason that they split apart, the difference, differences between the way that Freud tackled his project and Jung did is for whatever sloppiness Freud often gets accused of in terms of his unscientificness, uh, in his sort of lack of falsifiability and all that stuff, Freud was a real systematizer. He was a very, like, he, his system was clear and he thought led to some very clear uh, there's some very clear consequences to the way that he viewed the mind he spelled out how the unconscious was supposed to work and how defense mechanisms worked and how therapy was supposed to he had a, a theory of social development and he thought therapy was a good way of bringing the unconscious into the conscious through this talking cure and then later on, when he gets to things like civilization and its discontents and all these like fancier books where he tackles all of culture or all of religion, he goes beyond that basic theory. But it's always, I think, that his basic theory of individual psychology is at the heart of everything. Jung is not clean like that. Jung does not specify clearly the mechanisms, at least in the, my understanding, like the mechanisms by which archetypes influence, say, behavior or motivation or how exactly the process of individuation, which we'll get to, is supposed to work in therapy. Um, the closest he comes is just giving examples of how. Yeah. Like, Freud, again, it's somewhat ironic given how some scientists and psychologists view Freud now, but he really thought of himself as a scientist. He was yeah. thoroughly naturalistic. He rejected like mysticism of all kinds whereas Jung was much more open even though he was also he thought that this was an empirical project he was engaged in he was more open to mysticism and um, had a lot more respect I think 
for religious ideas than uh, than Freud did. Yeah. E- even if they sort of would sometimes come to the same conclusions about what the loss of religion meant for modern man or something like that. Yeah, Freud was obviously cynical about religion. I mean, fair to say that he was cynical just about the human condition. Yeah. And and Jung has this, like you say, mysticism that he embraces where he thinks that that the unification of the psyche is almost as if the ancient wisdom has been trying to tell us all of this all along. We we need only sort of come to terms with it. Yeah, and and recognizing them as like deep facets of the world, like kind of core elements of the world and, and human consciousness. You know, whereas for Freud, I think... He, he he would tend to be like more reductive about yes. a lot of right. a lot of that stuff. I was listening to, in fact, I should shout out um, J.F. Martel. He I know he just from listening to them that he is a, he knows a lot. He's read a ton of Jung, and he recommended these uh, four essays on the four main archetypes um, that that you and I read. They did a a, a podcast episode on. Jung's approach to art and one of the things they said was a big difference between Freud and Jung is how they would view say I think they used as an example of a Leonardo da Vinci um, painting uh, like something about Mary and somebody else and (laughs) Freud would just say oh just this just he would just say this just shows that Leonardo has two mothers or this is an expression of the fact that he had two mothers and Jung, like that was a foreign and like unproductive way of approaching art for Jung. He was like, that just tells you about uh, Leonardo da Vinci. It doesn't tell you about the art. And right. the art itself is this autonomous thing that once it's out there, you wrestle with and you're not just trying to learn the personal uh, history of the artist in some way. You're not just trying to learn how fucked up they are because of this aspect right. of their history, which relates to the big content difference between them too. I think. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So the difference um, in Freud's emphasis on the mind as produced by an individual's personal history. So, so really solely, like if you understood some basics about how the mind is structured and an individual's specific personal history, then you're understanding psychology. You're understanding in that person's psychology. Right. That person's unconscious is entirely yeah. c- consists of just his personal history. Right. Which and some and some basic universals like a drive to right. sex. You know. Um, whereas Jung uh, divides the unconscious up into the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious. And you can see, uh, like obviously Jung has built his ideas on Freud. A lot of the concepts that he uses are based on his borrowing or, or whatever, you know, of, of Freud's. Yeah, yeah uh, of Freud. I don't think we should talk too much about it, but they did have a really funny relationship and a weird falling out yeah. <laughs> that, that is worth reading. But I'll just say this. 
given that both of their theories kind of are, uh, it, it is very difficult to falsify any claims. That it's no, it's no wonder that they ended their relationship with a lot of accusations back and forth. That the person was just, you know, Freud was just saying like, you're just, you have a father complex with me, and you're just projecting whatever. You're neurotic in this way, and Jung would say you're neurotic in this way. That my theory says. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. Uh, One concept I think, especially that they both share, is projection. This idea yeah. of projection when you're unconscious can't find expression in your own in your own consciousness in your own uh, self then you project these aspects of you onto other figures or onto the world right. and i just freud just thought again it that's just your personal history that's influencing what you're projecting whereas for jung you can be projecting either some, something from your personal history, which is usually the shadow, these parts yeah. of yourself that you've repressed, <laughs> or it can be one of these main archetypes that form the collective unconscious. Like, So you could be projecting animus or anima onto other people. I and mean, he even thought that's how people fall in love. I mean, we'll go into yeah. these things in more detail, but often <laughs> yeah. love, falling in love is just projection of this unconscious anima, animas within the man, right? And animus is within uh, yes. the woman. Um, yes, animus is the male archetype yeah. that resides in a woman. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and not only fall in love, but also uh, the petty bickering of yeah. a couple. <laughs> he, he has a great uh, description of that. Both of them believed that then the goal really uh, was of, of, say, the therapeutic process, but I, I think just of humanity they just thought that the therapeutic process was necessary, was to bring the unconscious conscious. And um, for both of them, dreams were very important. So analyzing dreams was central to Freud's methodology because he thought you could bring the personal unconscious into conscious light. Um, but again, for, for Jung, it was more than that. And here's where, so you asked something I didn't answer at the beginning, which was what I think of Jung. And, and what I think of Jung and his ideas are almost beside the point here. Like I, <laughs> I, in the sense that I enjoy reading Jung and I really enjoy like the deep dives he takes into mythology. If you push me, I think it's a crock. I think it's a lot of, of um, the kind of p-hacking that we had before statistics, which is him going through whatever mythologies of the world he could to find examples that would fit but that sounds much more disparaging than than what I believe. Like, like with Freud, and I believe we had a really similar discussion, I don't have to buy into any of the empirical claims or even the description that, that Jung has of how he goes about testing his, his claims to, uh, to find sort of gems in here and to find some wisdom about the human condition. And so... Yeah, I would maybe go a little further than that. I actually think he's onto something when he talks about these archetypes, these features of the collective unconscious that in a very Kantian way kind of like structure our experience, you know, like they yeah. are... The, he, I, he was influenced by Kant. Uh, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is the side of Kant that I actually, all joking aside, kind of find very interesting. Um, What's his terms for them? Like the categories or something like yeah, that? Yeah, the universal Compute. categories like yeah. time, space. And, yeah. yeah, right. And for Jung, it's a lot. It's obviously le way more specific than just 
um, time and space and, and things like that. And causation. Uh, yeah. but, it, but, it, but the idea is the same. It's You have these archetypes, which he says are formal, purely formal, and they manifest themselves <laughs> in uh, different ways depending on the culture, depending on the person, depending on all sorts of contingent factors, but they have at their core this common formal element. And his his evidence for this, again, like not evidence in the way that people seem to think is the only way to take anybody seriously now. But the idea is, like, look at all these myths that have strikingly common central uh, symbols, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, the great mother, the, the, the mother, the earth mother, the flood, the uh, wise old man father, the, tr- you know, the traveler, the hero's journey, all that stuff. And... Also, and this part I don't know about because I don't know if I dream like this, like right. like Jung's patient's dream, but these same things just show up in people's dreams. And so the fact that you have all these myths from all these different traditions that had no contact with each other and you have some of those same elements showing up in people's dreams, it does seem like that is a real discovery of some kind to assimilate those two things and to make at least a hypothesis about why like what explains that well here's where i say you can't have your cake and eat it too like you can't claim that this is empirical and that you have a method of discovery that's rigorous and also and also have sort of the kind of weak evidence that he that he proposed so i'd rather he didn't say that this was uh, that he had an empirical rigorous process because he does outline this um but so since we're talking about it let's just talk a little bit about one of the problems i have with the whole idea of the collective unconscious is that you know he really believes that this is her- hereditary that that somehow <clears throat> the these forms these archetypes made it in genetically into the mind and so that early human beings' experiences uh, are the universal source of these forms that exist in all of our unconscious minds. Wait a minute, because that was not my understanding, that they're the source of it. We're all equally the source of it. It's just how all human minds are structured. Yeah. The re- but the reason that it is in your mind, right? The reason that you have the anima, the animus, the old man, the hero, is right. because these were ideas that our ancestors had. So that's not my like what like are you sure about that that that's his view? I thought he yeah. was very kind of ambivalent. Oh about no no, he clearly says this, it's hereditary, right? But I don't think he means that necessarily Dar- in a Darwinian terms. I think he means that as this is something that has been passed down to us. I don't think he means that the reason we had this is because you know when we broke off from the monkeys. Or, in fact, there is something in what we read. I think it's what we read where he says, "Look, I'm not taking a stand on." Whether these are metaphysical or whether these are, you know, purely biological, he's just like, I'm just saying that they're there and this is how human, the human psyche is structured. I'm not taking, like, I, I'm, I'm going to be more neutral on how, how it got to this place. It, in any case, also the idea that any commonalities would be due to a deep structure, a deep shared structure of the mind. So any common myths would be evidence for the collective unconscious because of the, say, lack of communication between cultures. Right. Really rests on the assumption that there was no communication between these cultures. And there really was like a whole, like that. 
I think most people believe that the Epic of Gilgamesh has a flood and the Bible has a flood for very simple reasons, that people actually told those stories and those stories made their way across cultures, not because they were somehow imprinted in our minds, right? Uh, I mean, my again, we've been reading different things, but my understanding is there are plenty of cases where it's just according to like archaeologists, like these two cultures didn't interact, some of the East Asian cultures and some of the like ancient Greek cultures, and yet you still see a lot of the same stuff yeah, at, at very deep and core levels. Within- well, so it does rest on on that, right? So there are two there are two sources. The the archetypes of mothers and fathers can easily be explained by a universal experience that we all have with fathers and mothers. And and that, I think, is enough for a lot of things. Communication between cultures is enough for a lot of the seeming similarities. But also, you know, there are things that, that cultures can independently come up with that are not evidence for anything like a collective unconscious. Like, two completely independent, non-communicating cultures can come up with an umbrella because it, so- it solves the problem of keeping your head safe from rain nobody nobody would think that this is evidence of an archetypal umbrella being embedded in our mind right? so, like uh, yeah true but i will say that even if there is there was some communication between cultures and again I, I really think there are examples where there just definitely wasn't but even if there is the fact that these uh main story themes and motifs in in the most famous myths that are that continue to live on and on and that we keep going back to and remaking over and over again whether we've even read the originals or not that i think just like it doesn't prove that there that our minds are structured in a way where certain kinds of stories appeal to us on a very deep level and certain stories don't but i think it's very suggestive i think a lot of the the young stuff, and we should get into the details before we start arguing about. Um, yeah, but 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 a lot of this stuff is at the very least suggestive and something that I think you have to take seriously as a hypothesis. It does call for some kind of explanation. The fundamental aspects of certain kinds of stories in myths and religions, you know, whether or not there was there was contact, we seem drawn as as a species to this, these kinds of story structures. Yeah, and that's why I kind of wanted to sidestep this criticism because I knew that we might have a disagreement here because it's sort of, I, I think, an issue that, does, that I don't feel the need to resolve in order to find value in discussion of these universals. Um, right. So, so that's why I don't approach this in a curmudgeon way, although I might have sounded like that just now. In the foreword, I write as a physician with a physician's sense of responsibility and not as a proselyte, nor do I write as a scholar. Otherwise, I would wisely barricade myself behind the safe walls of my specialism and not, on account of my inadequate knowledge of history, expose myself to critical attack and damage my scientific reputation. Yeah. Which, when he yeah. said it was like, I feel like that should be our, uh, our <laughs> opening. just we're not speaking as union scholars yeah we're i think this is one of the things i like about him and freud because i think about maybe like freud didn't wasn't as transparent or open about this right but like i am raising a bunch of interesting ideas in ways that might uh border on 
crazy or very inspired by uh, mystical worldview, magic worldview. Yeah. Um, like, but at least I'm, I'm willing to do that because I find it fruitful to just draw attention to these ideas. And I know you're, I know the Dave Pizarro's of the world are going to start clicking their like tongues. Nitpicking. And, yeah. yeah. Like exactly. actually looking up your, your references. The number crunchers <laughs> of the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, what did I wear? Yeah, I, I, that's what's fun about him, though. Too. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agreed. Absolutely agreed. He's he's under no pretense. I feel like Freud was under a bit more pretense about what he was doing. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, let's talk about it then, and try to get into at least the main elements of the psyche. I can't say that I'm I'm a hundred percent sure I understand any of them, even the most basic. Like, like start with the ego. So f- the ego tell me if this is right, is sort of the center of all conscious experience? Yeah. So, and this is, I think, the idea of the ego is straight up the Freudian one where where he wants to just say, look, like the con- that part of the mind that is clearly accessible is what we will call the ego. The Like, start with that. That is the content of your mind that's available to you. Right. And it's just the parts where he says, but it's not identical with the things you're conscious of or conscious. Like it's, it's in some ways the seat of all that, but I guess we don't have to yeah, try yeah. to figure that out. You're not, I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> to have, to, yeah. M- moving on, I guess. So there's, there's the ego and the conscious self, which I don't think is an archetype, um, but it's just the seat of your, of y- yeah. your conscious life. And then you have an archetype like the shadow. But before we get to the shadow, because yeah. I think there might be something in between that, which is the persona. Um, oh yeah, the persona. That's right. The per- yeah. and I, I think the persona is still part of the ego. Uh, yeah. It, because so the persona is the mask you put on f- to interact with society. It's a, it it allows you to engage with ordinary society with the norms and expectations that it has. Yep. Very much the very much the mask. It's the nice, it's the nice you that you put on to be accepted and and get along. And what that is will depend on your history or your right. job or your the society that you live in. But I think he thinks we all have a persona of of some kind. Did you think a lot about the movie Persona in <laughs> Jungian terms? I did. I did not. I had completely forgotten about the persona, according to Jung. Yeah, because Persona really is a lot about this idea of a mask of all these expectations that society has for uh, women. So if you interpret it, we. I was even saying this though, not really conscious of the Jungian ideas that if you think that it's Alma's movie, her persona is like the expectations for being a nurse and a mother. And, um, and that is what she is trying to make her whole self. Now, Jung, and, and that's where the danger comes in. She is not accepting that she has all these other aspects of her that will try to manifest it themselves in other forms. And Jung thinks that it's a real danger when the person identifies with their persona too much, right? Yeah, he thinks that's just straight up unhealthy. Uh, Okay. Shadow (laughs) is an archetype. Maybe we should talk a little bit about what is is an archetype. So an archetype is a a form, it's a concept, it's it's an idea, but it seems that it has also a motivational aspect to it. 
it tries to express itself. It seeks, given that it's part of an unconscious element, it's part of the collective unconscious, like personal unconscious, it will seek expression and if it is not integrated, if it is not confronted and faced. The hero archetype, say, and its influence on you and the, its motivational influence on you will really depend on all sorts of cultural factors and personal factors. Right. So, yeah, so the shadow is... It's it's your dark. It literally is your dark side. <laughs> like yeah. it's the dark side. The the dark side of you that you have repressed in order that you may interact with polite society. So you push it down into your unconscious, and it will even as you're doing that will seek expression in certain ways if you do not confront it. And one of the main ways that it expresses itself is through projection. And so you see evil tendencies in others and you know when in reality what you're doing is suppressing or repressing these qualities or tendencies in in yourself and just pointing out in others and it is something that you need to work through like you need to do like literal shadow work in order to embrace those aspects of yourself that are darker because if you don't, so he has a nice uh, line. This is in the, the chapter on the shadow that we read. Um, Projections change the world into the replica of one's own unknown face. So if you're somebody who's isolated and has this real dark side that you won't face, you will project malevolence onto the world. You will find the world an alienating and, and evil place that will then make you more isolated because you're mistrusting everybody and you're maybe acting aggressively towards them and the, the circle is uh, will just intensify and intensify. Right. And there, there, you know, there's something to that, I think. Like the people who see themselves as wholly good and everybody else around them right it's that's like that old saying like if everybody if everybody around you is always being an asshole like maybe maybe yeah, you're yeah. the asshole <laughs> um totally is, and a lot of people's polit i think in political life it explain you know it's it can go a long way towards explaining just this idea that a lot you know a lot of your beliefs and your core kind of political convictions are not shaped by like you know some sort of rational evaluation, but it's, it's, it's a reflection in some way of, of of your personal unconscious drives or desires, right. and you know and 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 what those things just come out as something that are actually in you, and that leads to a lot of problems in terms of uh, political discussion because right. you're really not discussing the same things even if the words are the same. And yeah. he says, like, there's a great line that I thought really uh, represents liberals well. One can imagine how desirable it would be in such cases to dissolve the projection. And there are always optimists who believe that the golden age can be ushered in simply by telling people the right way to go. But just let them try to explain to these people that they are acting like a dog chasing its own tail to make a person see the shortcomings of his attitude considerably more than mere telling is needed for more is involved than ordinary common sense will allow. And so he calls this like a fateful misunderstanding when you try to reason somebody right. out of their projections. It's like, no, 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 no. You got, you're not speaking the same like psychic language at that point. That's right. And that's why, you know, it's, it's, it's a good hypothesis as to why 
political discussion is so often futile and frustrating <laughs> and you just get mad. And why your communist utopia won't work because you can't just present that as an idea. Everybody has to do their own shadow work. Well, yeah, but um, like the revolution. Uh, <laughs> sometimes a gun, sometimes a gun is all the shadow work you need. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by GiveWell, one of our favorite sponsors and, in general, favorite organizations. Donating money to help people can be a wonderful and selfless act, but how can you feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? You could do weeks of research to find the charities that are out there, what programs they run, how effective those programs are, and how the charity might use your money. Or you could visit GiveWell.org. There, you'll get a short, vetted list of the best charities they've found at saving or improving lives per dollar. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest impact, evidence-backed charities they've found. Over 50,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million dollars. And I'm proud to say many of those have been Very Bad Wizards listeners since they've been with us for so long. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save tens of thousands of lives and improve the lives of millions more. And here's the best part. GiveWell is free. GiveWell is absolutely completely free. They want to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. So they publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free with no sign-up required. So it's not like they're even trying to collect data on people who use them. As I've said a few times on uh, this podcast and these ad reads, I love letting GiveWell decide how to use my money. So there's an option to have uh, the GiveWell people use the money in whatever for whatever cause uh, they deem worthy. That way I don't have to make the decision. I don't have to pick a specific charity. But there's another thing I want to say about GiveWell uh, that I don't think I've highlighted before, which is that they're just such a trustworthy organization. They have an entire section of their website devoted to their mistakes. And so if you go to givewell.org and you uh, see the navigation bar on the top, there's a section called Our Mistakes with an entire table of contents dedicated to essentially transparency in letting you know where they think that they've fucked up. So, I don't know. You know that they are a trustworthy organization. They let you know when they've done something that they're uh, not happy with. And you can trust that they're going to use your money wisely. So, if you've never donated GiveWell uh, to any of their recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $250 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to givewell.org and pick podcast and enter Very Bad Wizards at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from Very Bad Wizards to get your donation matched. Our thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Nowhere I think is there a better cinematic, at least like a more straightforward cinematic uh, representation of shadow work than when Luke Skywalker goes into this cave and battles what he thinks is Darth Vader. 
cuts yeah. his head off, removes the helmet and finds that it's himself. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah. So for Jung, as you're doing this work of trying to integrate these shadow parts of you, as you're doing the shadow work, your persona breaks down a bit as you integrate the, right. the shadow. Um, and integrating the shadow is perhaps the easiest of the archetypes to yeah. integrate. Yeah. Because because he says this is what moral education is is often about. It's it's pointing out that we're not all perfect. Um, we get told this is just part of like human wisdom to be told that like you're not you know your farts right. actually do stink. Right. And in that sense, it's an archetype. You know the uh, you know you find the idea of original sin, or you find like in Taoism right. this idea of good and evil being two sides of the same coin. So he really thinks that this is the one that you're going to most likely have success with. Not that you always will, for sure. But it's it's not something that you can do. Like I think the teaching that you're talking about preps you for that. That's right. It just makes but, you more open. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Jung doesn't believe that there's anything really in normal everyday life that prepares you to do this kind of individuation work. Like, yeah. I should say I've we've I think we've used the term individuation uh, already before describing it. But this is what Jung viewed as the goal of of all of this. Um, yeah. But you can, with work of, you know, much easier than with these other archetypes, start to integrate your shadow, which will in turn make, make you identify less with your persona. And, you know, of course, this is a big aspect of a lot of works of art. Um, yeah. The person and his evil side or, or her evil side that they won't accept, that they are keeping down and that then finds ways to fuck up their own lives and the lives of people around them often through some kind of projection right yeah right from the most the the heavy-handed ones like Jek jekyll and hyde mm -hmm. but i like most works that i find interesting are people whose bad sides emerge sort of in this in in, in a way that might not be expected by them or others. Which I think, you know, is certainly true to some degree that this is something that often our things that we don't want to admit about ourselves will um, end up being something that we see in other people. And, and, and Jung is very clear about how th this will be your reality. Uh, yeah. This is what's hard about it is you're, you will really see people like this or the world like this because it's so deeply ingrained in your, in your psyche to do this um, that it will affect your perception and your evaluative judgments at core levels. And so that's why it's so important, even if it can be so difficult uh, at times to incorporate these things. And actually, I don't know if you ever finished talking about individuation but do you want oh, no. to just say what that is yeah so individuation is is uh jung's term for the goal but it, it's not so much an end state it's, it's still a process but it is it is uh incorporating elements of your personal unconscious your collective unconscious and your conscious self into a sort of unified s unified self like one so that these aspects of you aren't battling it out <clears throat> so there's no self-deception going on so that you can actually become who you are that that yeah. is the process of individuation and then those elements will be in balance in like the symbols of individuation for Jung were things like these mandalas like these these circular forms that for him represented wholeness holistic unity 
Like that's the self in, in balance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, a, a very simple example is just the yin yang. Of, yeah. Um, that you find in Taoism. Right. That's a great example. Yeah. And, and this is why, which I really like, and it took me a while to figure this out as we were reading it, being relatively new to young, but the idea of a self as archetype was, I was like, I thought the self is, yeah. this, is, is this goal for us, you know, part of individuating is the self is this organizing principle that can integrate aspects of the unconscious and your ego. And, but he also thinks it's an archetype and that you see this idea of wholeness in so many religions and so many, um, you know, works of philosophy, works of uh, literature and myth, um, the, the, the unity or the wholeness of uh, the self is not just something that we maybe aspire to um, create within us or to achieve. It's actually, it's also an archetype. Yep. It's also a kind of a framework. Yeah through which, you know, that will affect us. We, but in, in this way, it motivates us in a good way. And for him, these, these archetypes of the self often took the form of deities, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Deities um, or, you know, I Wise think like in East, Eastern religions, it can be, oh, I thought it would be more like Jesus's love, like this all-encompassing unity, like... Uh, kingdom of heaven. But it is true that Jesus never made it to be old. Thanks for pointing out that painful, uh, painful yeah, historical we, fact. We took care of that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I understood it more like the Buddhist notions of awakening where you just recognize a unity to everything. That's the self archetype. Um, and Christian, I was thinking Christianity has it in the form of like, this all-encompassing love or, uh, you know, or, or the God figure that's everywhere. But well, we, we stopped at chapter five, Christ, a symbol of the self, yeah. <laughs> but I assume from the title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, I was thinking of like Judaism, do we have this? And I don't, I don't know that we do. Notions of divinity within, within Judaism, especially the mystic. This is the part of Jung that I love, which is like the, the full-on embrace of the mystical traditions, the alchemical ones, the Kabbalah, yeah. Gnosticism. There's, yeah. there's plenty of, of Jewish symbolism That's true. for the, yeah. for the yeah. um, but Yes, anima and animus, interesting ideas that, I, that as, as you say, I find it hard to wrap my head around exactly what's going on. Um, yeah, so there's, the, there's two aspects to it. First of all, that we have the, the opposite gender or sex so if all men like you and i would have anima which yeah. is the female um kind of i guess great mother archetype or some sort of mother some slash sort of mother wife yeah. slash uh, feminine spirit feminine spirit that is part of our unconscious and that we can sometimes recognize in symbols sometimes in dreams um and my sense of it is, he thinks, one, it protects the ego from the unconscious. So a lot of the unconscious stuff is filtered through maybe anima or animus, but it's also a bridge to the unconscious once you engage in the individuation process. So th th there's, there's definitely good things about the anima animus too. It can, lead, it can lead us to the deepest parts of our unconscious and the self. And so yeah. like, that's the, it's like a way of 
getting to the self, to, to wholeness, is through the anima, recognizing the anima or the animus. Yeah. Um, so the anima and the animus are having this influence on our behavior, on our psychology. And Jung says, um, just as the anima becomes through integration, the eros of consciousness, so the animus becomes a logos. And in the same way that the anima gives relationship and relatedness to a man's consciousness, the animus gives to a woman woman's consciousness a capacity for reflection, deliberation, and self-knowledge. So you, the integration of whatever Jung thinks is the female side yeah. for men will make us more holistically healthy, yeah. whatever, actualized human beings in the same, same for the other. Like at, in, in one stroke, it's both sort of the sex, sex stereotype that he's dealing yeah. with. Like essentialism. Kind yeah. Of. Um, yet at the same time with a message that like both men and women would do right. well to sort of integrate these aspects of themselves into. Right. Yeah. It's not like saying, yeah, you go to your men's club and, and start drumming or like <laughs> right. get into fight clubs and stuff like that. It's actually saying those are probably projections of something, but the healthy thing is to actually integrate this female, more female, caring, uh, spiritual side. But it's, it's when you don't integrate them that, that some of that stuff was a little confusing to me. Um, like, I guess the woman starts getting very argumentative starts getting often because there's this aspect of her <laughs> yeah. that she hasn't integrated yet. And so it, it finds manifestation in, yeah, not can admitting I, that you're wrong. Yeah, you Can I read uh, yeah. some of this? So yeah. he says, look, like better I describe some of what I mean. So he says, woman is compensated by a masculine element and therefore her unconscious has, so to speak, a masculine imprint. This results in a considerable psychological difference between men and women. And accordingly, I've called the projection making factor in women, the animus, which means mind or spirit. The animus corresponds to the paternal logo, logos, reason, rationality, just as the anima corresponds to the maternal eros. But I do not wish or intend to give these two intuitive concepts too specific a definition. He goes on to say, okay, in women, on the other hand, eros is an expression of their is an expression of their true nature, while their logos is often only a regrettable accident. It gives rise to misunderstandings and annoying interpretations in the family circle and among friends. This is because it consists of opinions instead of reflections. And by opinions, I mean a priori assumptions that lay claim to absolute truth. So I think what he's saying is when it's a projection purely it's not doing the real work that the logos would do. Like it's taking the form of making absolute statements, but, but since it hasn't been actually um, like a part of the woman, it's, it's just a, uh, like a, a weak imitation of true reasoning. Yeah. Well, it's just, uh, you take these a priori assumptions, assume that they're facts and base your, you know, arguments, um, uh, or judgments on those a priori assumptions. I don't think you recognize that you're making these assumptions. No, no, you don't. And so, yeah. so you're taking the form of the male argument, but with like, but all you're borrowing is the absoluteness of the conclusions. Exactly. <laughs> and then Not it says, the, yeah. <laughs> as the animus is partial to argument, 
He can best be seen at work in disputes where both parties know they are right. Men, he says, can argue in a very womanish way, too, when they are anima-possessed and have thus been transformed into the animus of their own anima. With them, the question becomes one of personal vanity and touchiness, as if they were females. With women, it is a question of power, whether of truth or justice or some other ism, for the dressmaker and hairdresser have already taken care of their vanity. So when, when men haven't integrated the anima, they they will also take the form their arguments might also take the form of a stereotypical female which is you know getting all whatever but hurt like in your arguments <laughs> yeah no now i feel like i understand you a lot better i was going to say the same about you yeah <laughs> you can argue in a very womanish way actually <laughs> this is this is true but except for it's integrated yeah this is i'm sure like i didn't actually come across that much stuff about like the sexism inherent yeah. in uh young but i would think that there's a fairly big literature because he relies on these fairly stereotypical which he might say they're stereotypical because they're right. archetypes you know and that's why these stereotypes are going to pop up and you're not you get you're not going to be able to talk people out of them uh or have like like seminars yeah. that will just show people the error of their ways so i don't know but the but he's but i think the reason why he doesn't get a lot of flack and there's no calls for cancellation or anything <laughs> much like that is because his intentions here are to, to integrate both these aspects in both men and women, and like, yeah. everyone can get behind that. I think that's right. So I think that that I think that's the charitable interpretation, and pro- like I don't think it's wrong to say yeah. that that he's calling for some sort of unity here. I mean, look, if he was calling for the unity of the shadow, which is essentially incorporating, trying to find the evil parts of yourself and incorporate them, he's calling for for the unity of all the unconscious archetypes. And as you say, an archetype is just, you know, a stereotype by a different sort of like shaped, shaped in a different way. No, Um, because he even says most, like he talks about him, like he says in men, Eros, the function of relationship is usually less, usually less developed than Yogos. And in women, it's more often like the other way, but in like using terms like that, doesn't seem like a, like a, an essentialist because as, especially since this could be culturally influenced as well it's just at a very deep level culturally in, influenced if it's yeah, yeah. the archetype i like to think that uh, that jung would have very little interest in those kinds of debates <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or his interests would be more idiosyncratic. Yes. Less trying to like start fights about it. He would. I think he would find a lot of projection in many of the debates over like culture war. And and I'm sure he would look for you know like as people have said there are many cultures where you have things like two spirits right like like yeah. the the notion of something both masculine and feminine, and feminine. at the same right. time is is there it's there in culture right like, you know. it's there and like we were reading the Dao de jing and it's there it's all over the Dao de jing with none of the stuff about you know men are better reasoners and and yeah. women are more caring or something like that it's just it just talks about the the feminine and the masculine and the need to have or embrace both so yeah. so what does it mean to integrate say you like for me to integrate my anima <laughs> It's a good like, question. Um, you know, you know, he had this 
these ways of, say, visualizing the self and the ego, and you couldn't have the self encompass the ego and the, or the ego encompass the self, and the, the symbols of unity and balance were what he used to refer to the individuated uh, person. I, I think taking him at his, like, in his very psychiatric, like, I'm, I am a practitioner of this, like, I am bringing you into my office to talk about this. I think it is, conf- the it, process of individuation is confronting the archetypes, how they have uh, given rise to projections, and yeah. in making the unconscious conscious, stripping it of its, of its power to be projective and rather making it, making you accept that it's an aspect of your own personality. You know, I am mm-hmm. like this. This is something. It's still abstract, but I think that's the goal of the therapeutic process for yeah. And I think, so it would be via, so you talk about a dream or you talk about this myth that you uh, are drawn back to, or you talk about your fantasies and that will show you certain aspects of yourself, which you don't think is a part of yourself. And it's in that recognition, say that, no, you have these evil characteristics or you have these, uh, you know, these really dark, aggressive, hostile, um, that, that you're now projecting on like, Trumpists or something like that. Right, it's a part of you, and uh, and so is this kind of craving for some, you know, more feminine. That that's the one that's a little harder. Like confronting your shadow, and and recognizing the parts of yourself that you don't want to admit are parts of your personality. That that I get more than the animus. Yeah, I mean, and let alone then bringing all of the other archetypes in, which is right. it's unclear. Also, you know how many archetypes there are in his sort of pantheon, like the sub-archetypes. Like, I think it is helpful to recall that Jung, as like with Freud, that their therapeutic goal was, was to bring patients in who were exhibiting mental disorders, like neuroses, and that this process was supposed to bring about the healing of these neuroses. So you come in... um, I, you know, I think like like Freud would say, you have a fixation at this stage of development, and once we get to the root of that, the thing you're unconscious, we can cure you. Jung would say, like it is this archetype that's projecting that's causing this particular ailment. So let's work on this aspect of your personality. So. But as I understand it, the difference is Freud. Like once you were cured and recognized, you know, this thing that was making you this part of your unconscious that was. Um, fucking up your mental health you were kind of done you were healed whereas Jung thought healthy people need to do this individuation process too because it's the fundamental goal of human life is to integrate to individuate to become a fully realized version of your particular self and 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 that's like what gives life meaning yes and moreover you were constantly doing this like this was a process for you it wasn't that you got there and you were done and I think for you, for like a quote-unquote normal person, um, as with for someone with a disorder, that that this process of individuation was supposed to give you something like a freedom, like in, in some abstract sense, a freedom that you didn't have before. Before you were, he, he talks about patients being controlled by their own neuroses, controlled by the influence of their unconscious. And so that's what he's trying to give an individual, like get back that control over who you are. But at some fundamental level, 
you know, even people that are reasonably psychologically healthy. So say you and I and other people <laughs> yeah. might disagree, but like we but still But they're wrong. Have, and they're wrong and evil. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and stupid. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but we still are and, and at less kind of destructive in less destructive ways, maybe controlled by certain aspects of our unconscious that uh, we won't, we don't accept or don't recognize. And we could be a lot or a lot more free or, you know, uh, actualized if we did this, like anybody can go through would benefit from. In fact, I think for young thought, just like this is it, this is what we're here for is to find out who we really are and and who we really are that incorporates both these unconscious collective unconscious and and individual uh, unconscious like that's that's what gives life meaning for us right now and um you don't have to be a neurotic or you know have some kind of mental disorder to benefit from this process like everybody would right yeah, there there is something about authenticity that's supposed to, I think, come with this, which is like the taxing work of denying or ignoring these aspects of yourself is essentially led to a constipated psyche. And what we need to do is stop ignoring, stop denying. Like there is yeah. something inherently unhealthy about all that. Yeah. He says, our age has shifted all emphasis to the here and now, and thus brought about a demonization of man and his world, demonization. The phenomenon of dictators and all the misery they have wrought springs from the fact that man has been robbed of transcendence by the short-sightedness of super-intellectuals, like the post-Christian age, uh, the disenchantment of the world by like scientistic people like yourself. Like them, he has fallen a victim to unconsciousness. But man's task is the exact opposite, to become conscious of the contents that press upward from the unconscious. Neither should he persist in his unconsciousness nor remain identical with the unconscious elements of his being, thus evading his destiny, which is to create more and more consciousness. As far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light in the darkness of mere being. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, and I I get why he would think that you know, in a post-religious world, this would be harder and harder because he thinks that we're turning our back on these universal symbols. But I don't think that that's necessary, um, necessarily the case in in an increasingly secular world. These symbols should rear themselves regularly. Maybe it's just we don't treat them with reverence, but, but, you know, most of good cinema presumably is doing some of that work for us, um, or at least enlightening us as to how to do that work. Yeah, I think the kind of mentality that he would say is destructive is the kind of stem, only stem, you know, humanities are worthless because it won't help you get a job and <laughs> things that even push you away from myths and art and, um, you know, it's that mindset that I think he would find well, to be destructive. And for instance, but, cur- the current strain of dominant Christianity. Um, yes, like, right. You know, it's not just scientism. <laughs> no, that's right. It's, uh, uh, but I think, yes, it's, and he had a lot more respect for Christianity than uh, um, Freud did. Who yeah, well, Freud was Nietzsche. a Jew. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, but Nietzsche, too, like, they they thought Christianity was actually something that, that repressed you or minimized you, um, whereas 
uh, I think Jung thought that like a lot of religions, he also had a ton of respect for the Eastern religions, it could open you up. You know, it was a symbol that could lead you to um, finding out aspects of your psyche that you don't know you have. And this is maybe one of the last things that I, I just wanted to talk about, which is Jung's um, fascination with mysticism, which makes sense to me because the sim- the symbols in the mystic traditions, the, the kinds of things that one focuses on, the kinds of, of things that one is taught, I think, in the more mystical traditions, coincide much better with the personal transformation that Jung is talking about. So Jung interpreted alchemy, which is often just thought of as the, you know, precursor to chemistry where people wanted to turn anything into gold. All of the the symbols of alchemy, like they, there was like just a lot of weirdness there. Mm-hmm. He thought were simply that it was all a metaphor to the uninitiated. It was good that you think that you that, that we're just here in the laboratory trying to turn shit into gold. But to right. the initiated, what was going on is this transformation, this personal transformation of, mm-hmm. of the self into the individuated self. And, and to recognize uh, that we're all the same substance, yeah. you know, or that we are all have some, the, the same foundation. I like that stuff too. Again, as somebody who is not temperamentally, you know, attracted to mystical ideas, but I think like I have a ton of respect for for them and their potential. Well, and I'm a fan. Just you know, the to me, there are just these lines of connection in in the thinking of Jung, the writings of Borges, um, who also deeply respected sort of the mystical tradition. All that shit that's Gnosticism and Kabbalah. That stuff yeah. to me has always been fascinating, and yeah. maybe the opposite of you. I feel constitutionally drawn to those things and right. intellectually rejecting of it, much as I described my stance toward Jung, which was, I like this. I just don't think, you know, I don't think it stands up to empirical scrutiny, but uh, that doesn't mean, it sounds contradictory, but that there's a deep way in which I enjoy it. And I think that's why I enjoy it in the works of fiction. Like deep down, I kind of want to believe <laughs> like right. in this stuff. I just, yeah. Yeah, you do. Um the Gnostic stuff, just like, you know what we could do one time is like, or the Kabbalah stuff. Um, do you ever see the movie Pi? Yeah. The yeah. Aronofsky yeah. movie? Yeah. That might be fun, fun to, do, yeah. to see in this context, either for a bonus episode or for this episode. Yeah. But yeah, cool. cool. Uh, I had some more things to say, but yeah. maybe, I'm sure we'll come back to Jung at some point. Yeah, I mean, there's, this, a, there's a, a lot. <laughs> yeah. So let's leave it there for now. Yeah, oh. Maybe Joseph Campbell. Maybe we could talk about Joseph Campbell at some point. Yeah. Sure. I have his book, you know, the, the interviews the, with uh, oh, yeah. uh, uh-huh. Bill Moyers, I think. Some of, some of the stuff on myth and Joseph Campbell on myth and stories would be really cool to do, yeah. I think. All right. Hope you have expanded your consciousness by listening and join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Brains than you have. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain.